Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today, I'm joined by Will Battersby and Diane Shader-Smith to talk about the new documentary film, Salt in My Soul, which is based on the posthumously published best-selling memoir of the same name. This film takes you inside the mind of a young woman who tries to live a full life while dying. Mallory Smith was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the age of three. In her 25-year battle with the deadly disease, she carved out a life that most of us don't come close to. Using Mallory's posthumously published 2,500-page secret diaries, hundreds of hours of newly discovered footage, and audio recording, the film offers Mallory as the narrator of her own extraordinary chronicle. It was an honor to speak with Will, and especially with Diane, about her daughter, and they're both an inspiration for the work that they're doing. This is an incredible film, and I hope you'll check it out when it's on VOD on January 25th. I hope you enjoy the show. Big thanks to Bookman's for sponsoring it, and thanks to Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Is Diane Will? Perfect. Thank you so much. Hey, Diane. Hey, Will. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. We do too. Okay. Thanks. For <laughs> well, the the first thing um, I just want to say thank you both for making the film. Uh, D- Diane, thank you for being so vulnerable with this movie and willing to share this story because this is a movie that goes far beyond um, something that's a uh, how somebody died. It's really about how they lived and uh, and it's hopeful in a way that we should live. And I think this is a, a film and a story that needs to be shared and retold. So thank you for that. Thank you. We need help. We, we, we did our job. Now we need you to do yours. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And, and that's uh, that, that's, I'm glad to do that. There's um, thank with, you. without a cynical bone in my body, spreading the Perfect. word of this film, I think is a very easy one to get behind. Can thank you. What, what, how did the two of you meet? What um, led you to decide to do or decide to tell such a deeply personal and um, difficult to tell story? Well, I'll start and then you can jump in, Diane. Um, so uh, one of the producers on the film, Richard Abate, uh, sent me the book at the end of 2019. Um, he uh, was pivotal in, in selling the, the memoir to Random House uh, that published it. Um, and he'd always thought it would make a great film. And um, he sent it to me and, and I sat down and read it in one sitting um, was completely moved and inspired and um, had, a, you know, a thousand questions, you know, one of which was, could I, you know, could we pull this off as a documentary? Was there enough, you know, material, audiovisual material out there? Um, and and then Richard put Diane and I on the phone and we spent a long time, you know, Diane grilled me, you know, she's, she's a fierce gatekeeper, quite rightly so, um, as you can tell from the movie. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I needed to, I had a lot of questions too about, you know, what, what was out there, um, you know, who'd be open to being interviewed, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then the rest is history, as they say. And Diane, what was it that about Will that said, okay, this is, this is a guy I can trust. I'm going to, look past any hesitation that I might have and say, this is somebody I can trust with this story. The truth is who he came from. He came from Richard and Richard had mm-hmm. taken on the job of selling Mallory's story to random house. 
And we always said we were never going to profit from sales of books or sales of the movie, but we have a very big agenda for what we want to do with any money that we can make. And so Richard understood what it was. He also asked me early on, do you want to do a limited series? Do you want to do a documentary? Do you want to do a feature? What are you thinking? And I said, Mallory was a writer and I want to do a book. And that's what I wanted to do first. And by the time Will and I were introduced, I had Richard's trust 100%. And so I said yes to Will. I mean, I, Will, Richard just said, do you want to meet him? And I said, look, if you trust him and you like him and you think he can do this film, then I'm, I, who am I to second guess you? This is your work. And, but I still, even though I had that testimonial, I didn't immediately trust Will, not because of anything that Will had done or would do, but because the idea of turning Mallory's story over to somebody, you know, as a control freak helicopter mom who micromanaged every detail of her life, you can imagine, you know, giving the story to somebody to interpret in their way. And I, I challenged Will a lot. We had a lot of time on the phone, probably more than he would have wanted. But I, whenever I had a moment of thought, like, where's he going with this? I'm not sure. I would call him and I would say, and he always made himself available, which was part of why he earned my trust. And I would ask him, what are you doing? What are we doing? What is this film about? Where are we going with it? What's the point? You know, I had a lot of doubts in the beginning because she is such a writer and it was such a written story. And it was just, I had that vision in my head and I just wasn't sure how he would be able to take her story and do it in a, in a, in a documentary. And he wanted me to be a main character and I really didn't want to be in the film at all. And if I was going to be, I wanted it to be really small. And so it was a lot of soul searching. And um, I think COVID helped. I'll let Will jump in at this point. COVID I think was a, a friend to this film. It, it was, it was in, in many ways. You know, we we were very lucky in that we shot most of what I would have wanted to shoot just before lockdown. You know, we did, we had to bring our cinematographer back from Hawaii where he was shooting all of the underwater stuff and B-roll. Um, we had to bring him back early to New York because they were about to close the airports here. But, you know, then um, it gave us a long time to edit, you know, and it gave us a long time to discover all of the material, um, to live with it, to, you know, and to build the film out. And, you know, and, and it, it, Diane's absolutely right. You know, I, I wouldn't normally have wanted to be on the phone or in contact as much with somebody so closely related, but this is a very different film, you know, and I, I always knew it would be very different, you know, that it's not a sort of, you know, uh, you know, it's not a gotcha doc. We're not, you know, exposing something. We're not writing wrongs in a certain way, you know, and it's much more of a kind of cinematic character-based piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually those conversations with Diane, you know, they were very useful because, you know, I could, I could ask lots of questions and, you know, cause I had not, I never met Mallory, you know, she'd passed away before I became involved in the film. Um, you know, so I could sort of, you know, I could check that I was doing, I was on the right track, you know, in terms of who she was and moments and what happened when and all of those things. But, you know, it also was very interesting because I realized by having Diane sort of, you know, by having those conversations that, that this was, this was a grieving mother, right. And, and that my conversations with her and this whole process was part of that grief and it what it, it opened my eyes to the fact that all of the interview subjects in my film you know despite the fact that we set Mallory up as the narrator you know and she's speaking very much in the present tense and leading you you know through the chronology mm-hmm. that actually all of those interviewees are grieving right so there are actually there are sort of two different time periods in the film if you will um 
and that and I and I and I love that about the film, you know, and 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 having Diane sort of, you know, she inadvertently led me to that second part of it, you know, while she was very focused on the, you know, the truth, the chronology, the facts, um, it led me into an emotional place on the film, which, um, which I, which I loved. So. And it creates this unusual balance um, because these people that, as you say, they're grieving, they're referring to Mallory in the past tense, but we're hearing her voice in the present. And so it creates this uncomfortable reality the whole time where you're like, oh, why are you talking about her in this past tense? This is somebody that I am just getting to know right now. And it, and it just doesn't feel, it's always putting you kind of off balance the whole time. Um, and the idea of grief and hope are very closely related to each other. And you feel kind of this balance shift in the film between who's grieving and who is hopeful um, throughout this process. And at its core, these are grieving people that are telling a story that is wildly hopeful at the same time, I feel. Yeah, no, I, I thank you for saying it. I, that's exactly um, right. You know, I, you put it nice, very nicely. I mean, I, I think there's exactly, I mean, that's the whole film is, you know, Mallory's life was very much that, you know, it, it, I always think of the structure of the film as it's odd. You know, we try very much to sort of have a classic three act structure, but it's actually it's much more like a roller coaster ride, mm. right? In that you have these very high ups and then you have these big dips, you know, and then you slowly go up to the high again and you go down again. And, um, you know, and I think that's exactly right. The film is constantly has this sort of duality about it of both the sadness, the tragedy, but also the hope, you know, and I think that's that I hope is a good representation of Mallory's character. You know, as far as I understood it, it was this extraordinary resilience in the face of unimaginable suffering. Well, I think the the moment, Diane, that really grabbed me, that captured me, was this thing that you say that um, people that have cystic fibrosis, they understand something about life that it takes us 70, 80 years to understand. I don't remember the exact wording of it, but they just appreciate life in a way that we don't unless we have something like this, um, this outside thing that's beyond your control, that's always over your head your entire life. And I think that um, it's incredible that what we can learn from that. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, what you learned about your daughter in, we have an, as a dad, I have an idea of what my children's lives are internally, but it's completely from an outside perspective. You had entryway to your daughter's life through these 2,500 pages of diaries and, it, was there something that you learned about her story that you wanted to make sure you were representing um, in this film and in the book? It's a really good question. And the answer is yes. And I would say you couldn't find a mother-daughter closer in terms of time spent together, discussions, conversations than Mallory and I were. And yet to understand and learn after she died through her writing that I really didn't know 100% of her thought process I knew what she was doing all the time and I knew her external moods and I knew sometimes she would privately cry to me. Sometimes she would privately rage to me. Sometimes we had those moments, but the underlying current that propelled her forward, that was both that hope that you're talking about and that desperate fear and that desire to do so many things when, I don't know if you've read the book, but in the book, she talks about how she sets goals. And then when her health declines, she has to send replacement goals. And when her health declines again. She has to set replacement goals for the replacement goals. And it's a constant adjusting. And I think COVID has done that 
for the United States of America, the whole world, but you know, talking about our country here right now, I have so many people who have said, I cannot believe how COVID had messed with my plans. Now, let's talk about this. Friday, Will has created a film that's opening in New York and Los Angeles in the theaters, but nobody's going because we're in COVID. And all I can think is, this is what Mallory lived with. We've been working hard on this for two years and we would want nothing more. Will's in New Jersey and I'm in Los Angeles than to be in a room together and to smile and celebrate Mallory's life on film and all that he achieved in this wonderful film and all the opportunities that are coming as a result of the topics discussed. But COVID got in the way and for Mallory, CF always got in the way. And she writes a great piece in the book about cystic fibrosis doing a lot of taking and how you have to reinvent your creativity. And I think that I learned a lot about that and what I would share among all the other messages that are so important in the book. I mean, I'm sorry, in the film, you know, about mental health, about invisible illness, about antimicrobial resistance and superbugs and organ donation and all these different things, the connection between human sickness and environmental erosion. Beyond that is the fact that don't just accept what you see on the surface. Always know that there's stuff going on that you don't really know is happening in in your children's head, your teenager's heads, your adult children's heads. I don't always know what my son is thinking, despite the fact that we talk every day. And it's a reminder to probe, push, prod, try to dig a little deeper, because I think I wish I had done that. That's sort of my regret that I didn't dig deeper, that I chose to kind of glide along and accept that she was okay, despite her prognosis when she wasn't. No, of course not. But you do have that that insight to where her head was, where that was at. And there's something that it's very difficult to be a one-way sounding board when you want somebody to express themselves. And you really do have that now where she can open up to you in a way that without any feedback, with just without any fear of judgment, without, you know, the sick often feel that they need to take care of the healthy where they oh, yes. will look out for us. And they'll say, no, no, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Cause they can see the stress and anxiety and we're really, and it's just this thing where we're, our emotional well-being and trying to take care of each other. It goes both ways. It's never just one-sided in that way. Very perceptive. Well, <laughs> it's I, 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 just the being, I, I think anybody that's a parent goes through that at some point. And it's you, you've had that moment where you see your kids being affected by what you're doing and oh, shit, I'm getting this wrong. I'm not, I'm not in this moment in the right way. And having that kind of insight is something that's very few of us will ever have. Um, and well, I do, I do find myself saying something to friends all the time. And I catch myself because it's really easy to become preachy at this point. But I have a friend, for example, and she's not particularly thrilled with the person that her adult child has chosen to be his life partner. And I say all the time, you know, how can you not recognize that this person brings your child joy? And you don't realize what you're doing by communicating these messages that you're not happy and I just see things so much more clearly now. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. and I would love to turn the clock back, but I can't turn the clock back. So what I try to do is I try to practice that with my son and I catch myself all the time saying things that just come naturally to say, to say that I used to say to Mallory and that I know now were not necessarily the best things to say. And so I, I have learned a lot in this process and I hope that people walk away from this film realizing that you do need to look a little deeper because you don't always know what your children or your loved ones are thinking. 
No, and I, I think there's something that um, you wrap that up beautifully in the Mediterranean food. Um, <laughs> that that anecdote, this idea that you know, we talk about the cystic fibrosis taking so much away from you and taking so much away from your daughter, and then in this moment where you got so close to this thing that was so hopeful, and then it's just gone. But then, look, we wouldn't have had this beautiful lunch together, this wonderful food with these people that we really care about. And like you're saying with COVID and all these things, we have to focus on these moments because it's so easy to get lost in these big picture that we lose sight of the tiny moments that really add up to a life. Yeah. And um, Will, how difficult was it to find that balance in this film with that where you don't want to um, lean into something that comes across as preachy because you could have had something that really could have gone in any number of directions here with this because Mallory was such a dynamic and interesting person that had all these different facets that you could have focused on one area of her. How did you figure out which side of this story to tell? Um, you know, it, it occurred to me when we were finished, I think, that I, I, in a certain way, been unconsciously making the film for my teenage daughter. She was 15 when I started. She's 16 now. And um, and I think, you know, I wanted to make a doc that was kind of a gate. I, I don't, this wasn't conscious at the time, but I think I wanted to make a doc that would kind of capture young people's imaginations, right? And there's nothing, you know, more appealing than a great American coming of age story, right? Gorgeous girl, blonde girl, she surfs, she lives in California. You know, it's, it's such a kind of, um, you know, an easy story to watch. Um, you know, and, and I... You know, the editor and I both, we we talked about it a lot. We had a lot of moments, you know, there are a lot of moments, of course, when somebody goes through the healthcare system, like right? the private private healthcare system in this country, there are so many moments where you can be mad at the pharmaceutical companies, the insurance companies who don't want to pay, you know, they didn't want to pay for Mallory's lung transplant. You know, we had that section in the film, you know. So when we were building it out, you know, our instincts as sort of, you know, documentarians, hard hitting, you know, was we had all those scenes in. And then you sort of, you know, we would build these scenes of Mallory's life and what was happening in this family and the kind of the, the emotional turmoil and, you know, the, the relationship between, you know, Diane and Mallory or, you know, who Mark is. And and I just started to feel like that's so much more interesting, right? We we all know that, you know, we've heard so many times, oh, this is bad, that's bad, you know, this, you know. And, and I think we've sort of, for me at least, I've reached a point where I'm so sick of being told how to think that I'd much rather just feel something, mm. experience it, and sort of, you know, and, and come to my own conclusions about what's important about the story and the implications of the story. And I think, you know, Mallory led such a kind of a rich life, if a short life, you know, and, and touched on so many big themes, right? Like, you know, Dan's saying, I mean, environmentalism, invisible illness, chronic illness, mental health, growing up, right? Having boyfriends, right? Being a parent, right? Like, like you say, like, you know, it's funny, my wife, you know, she would watch rough cuts of this and she was like, oh, Diane is my favorite character I've ever seen in a movie. I love <laughs> Diane so much, right? And like my daughter's like, oh my God, Mallory and her friends, they're so good, you know? And, and so in a way, it was, it was, it became a conscious decision to really make it an accessible cinematic experience rather than a teaching moment and diane is that what you would think mallory would want her life to be told in that way or do you think that it do you feel when you see this this is something that does honor the, um a version of her story that she would want to be told oh it absolutely honors a version of the story as she would want it to be told mallory was the 
opposite of me. I walk in a room and you know I'm there and you know what's on my mind and I share my opinions very freely and I don't hold back. And Mallory was gentle and more tentative and she expressed herself in her writing as opposed to being more verbal. And she was not a social media star. Like a lot of CF patients are on CF, I mean, are sorry, on social media all the time. And she, when she was on social media, she did it with her words and she wrote a lot and she did a lot of audio recordings, but she was a deep thinker. And I think this film reflects that. She had a lot of strong opinions. I would actually say her opinions were stronger than mine. And she took the time to get educated but she never wanted to offend anybody and she never wanted to preach to anybody. And she adopted the mantra live happy. And she just wanted to enjoy people and enjoy her relationships. And then when she had something she wanted to tackle, she had put pen to paper as opposed to hitting people over the head with it. (laughs) Yeah. I I think I I definitely tend to, um, unfortunately for those who are in my life tend to fall on the side of hitting over the head. And that's well, you're not- a parent, you're a parent, <laughs> Me too. right? I, I used to say to Mallory, you know, wait till you're a parent. And it's funny because my son has some friends, my Mallory's brother has some friends who have babies and, you know, I know he thinks I'm a totally, you know, domineering parent. And, um, I see him sometimes when he's with his friends, little babies. And I think, Oh my God, he's turning into me. And he, when he expresses his concern over things, I think, oh, wow, you know, and they say, if you talk to your children, your voice stays in their head. And I think that ultimately both of my kids and Mark's kids, they're a version of us. And so, yeah, just hopefully, hopefully they can, um, they can weed through the things that are coming from my voice, pick up the things that matter and let go of all my bullshit that I'm yeah. bringing to the table. Cause God knows there's a fair amount of that in my. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So this week, when I went into Bookman's, I walked over to the Blu-ray section to the criterion section, which is usually where I start when I go in there and I start circling my way around the store, but I didn't get very far uh, this last trip because one of the first things I saw was the Criterion Blu-ray for Foreign Correspondent. If you're not familiar with the film, it's a Hitchcock film from 1940. Of course, it's black and white and it's a spy thriller about a a reporter who goes to Britain uh, to uncover spies uh, right before World War II. Uh, breaks out. And this is a really fun film that I think deserves to be recognized amongst Hitchcock's better uh, spy thrillers. So I put it up there with North by Northwest and other films like that. I feel like it's been overshadowed by Rebecca because that year when this came out, Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent both came out that same year and both were nominated for Best Picture um, in the Oscars and Rebecca ended up winning. The only other director that I can think of that's done that had two films nominated for Best Picture in the same year was Francis Ford Coppola. I think that the conversation and Godfather 2 were up in the same year. If I'm wrong about that, I apologize. I guess I could go ahead and fact check myself right now, but I'm already recording, so screw it. I'm just going to run with it. And I don't think any other director has done that. If I'm mistaken on that, please let me know. I'd like to know who the uh, third one is to do that. And This is one of the things I love about going into Bookman's because this is a film that I've been wanting to pick up this particular Blu-ray for quite a while now, and there it was. I was so happy to see it, and 
dove right into it when I got home that night, uh, something my wife had never seen. She really enjoyed the movie. This is not the type of film that she really goes for normally. So if you haven't seen Foreign Correspondent, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Definitely check it out. That's the great thing about going to Buckman's because you're always going to find something there um, that you wouldn't wouldn't expect, something you wouldn't anticipate. Just go in there and kind of like I do, and I start circling around the store where I'll start in the Blu-rays and I'll go over to the vinyl and start working through the books and the rare books, and I'll go over and find a puzzle for my wife or come around and look for uh, some housewares, things like that. Might even find some electronics or speakers, and I mean, really. There's always something cool there. And remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. Um, <laughs> but so what, how can people see the film? I know that it's your are opening theatrically, um, then VOD on the 25th, which again, this is that kind of, yeah, you would all love to be in a room, but still the entire world will have access to the film in just, you know, a little bit over a week. So there is that side of it where I think yes. that that's, yeah. that, that is a wonderful thing that you, it won't just be two theaters that, you know, might be difficult to get people to show up at this point. Yeah. And we're, we're lucky too, because um, we are also scheduling a pretty big event at the Kennedy center in Washington, DC uh, for early April. Um for Congress and the FDA uh, to sort of help move the needle on uh, superbug research funding. Um, so, and that should, fingers crossed, that should be in person. So Diane, you and I will finally get to watch the movie together. Um, and then we have a, you know, we have a whole host of other screenings that, you know, Yale is doing a screening. This will be all be virtual, um, you know, and that's sort of one of the interesting aspects of the reaction to the film is, you know, so many different groups. Diane's doing a big presentation for the National Institute on Mental Health um, Awareness. Um, there's a big environmental screening happening. So um, it's nice. You know, people people are people are seeing in Mallory's extraordinary interests and you know life their piece of the universe. You know, and that's that's very touching. And so we'll definitely have a chance to see it together. And um, and there's one more thing I want to add in there. I I was given the wording of what to say. Because well, because we're having this uh, celebrity screening, and I was told to say it's virtual. Follow our socials at Salt in My Soul Doc for the big announcement. That's what that was. Those are my marching orders from the social media team. <laughs> Almost an exclusive. I thought we were going to have a slip of the tongue there, Diane. Oh no, 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 no. no, no. of course. No, and no, no. yeah, so I will make sure that, that that people follow you on social to find out the <laughs> announcement there. But the but the but the main the main thing about the panels that's important to me. Is that what? It, what do you love to do? You like to go to the movies with your friends, then you come out and you're, you know, walking out to the street. And you're talking about it, and yeah. because everybody's going to be watching them in these vacuums, and I have given 200 talks in audiences across the country, and inevitably, when I was doing it in person in 2019, and for the last two years virtually, it's the same thing. The audience is deadpan; they just sit there. And then I learned to say, "Okay, I either did such a good job, you have no questions." Or I did such a bad job, you have no questions. And in person, they'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. But in the chat, great job, great job, great job. And we're processing, we're processing, we're processing. So I have come to understand that Mallory's story is so overwhelming. There's so much there that in a weird way, maybe fate or karma intervened. Maybe Mallory's pulling the strings from wherever she's residing, other than in my heart. 
Because what will happen is there will be this opportunity for people to come together with experts in the different areas, mental health, the environment, invisible illness, cystic fibrosis, transplant, organ donation, coming of age, family dynamics, and they can find a panel where people will speak about issues that may be important to them. And we're making everything very accessible. We're not charging for any of this. And it's just a way for people to come together as a community in whatever community speaks to them and hear about issues that are resonating from the film. So I think that's a really, and that's a COVID pivot. That's a COVID pivot because, you know, if you have a panel at Yale and it's in person, the only people that can come are the people that are there. But if you have a, we have a very cool panel coming out of UCSD with the phage therapy experts on uh, February 1st. And anybody who wants to do a deep dive into phage therapy from the people who are doing it, they can join. And I think it'll be very um, enlightening for them. Well, two things. One, that that was something that I wanted to learn more about in this from this film, just immediately finding out more about the possibilities of therapeutics treatments with phage therapy. That's something that could be a game changer, it appears, and that's huge. Um, the other thing is that I, I had a friend who passed away about 10 years ago from cystic fibrosis, and it was not unlike Mallory's story where he was a filmmaker, he was a musician, and he lived an incredibly beautiful life. And I don't, I, I avoid consciously thinking of John because of the the amount of weight that it carries in my heart still to this day. And I put off watching this film for a while because I didn't want to spend time in that. And it reminded me all of the good things. It it wasn't spending time and you know picturing him with the vest and these kinds of things. It was it was really spending time with a beautiful friend that I missed. And thank you for for making me relive those things. So I appreciate it. It's nice to know that I mean it's really helpful to somebody who's lost somebody to know that 10 years later, you're still thinking about him because I think that's what all of us who have lost somebody precious, we don't want the world to forget them. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that'll never go away for sure. And and Will, the other thing, the whole time we've been talking from the moment you came up, um, this is so odd, but you have the Bleeding House poster behind you and I'd completely forgotten about that. The first interview I ever did was for that film uh, so many years ago now at this point. So I forgotten about your connection there so thank you for that also because that movie that movie means a ton to me philip was my first interview so and uh that's oh that's so lovely yes um well great i love and it's one of my favorite posters ever it's such a great image and it's a guy that doesn't do posters won't do any more either it was a one and done thing so um well i can't the glare i can't make out the title on it it's literally i i knew the poster just from the suit and the black on the uh the blood red from that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, that's great. That's lovely. It feels like a nice bookend, but yeah, a phage therapy is, it's going to change the world, you know, and I don't think it, and it's such an, it was a really odd thing as a filmmaker to know that we had an ending that, you know, almost could be, you could have done the entire film about just phage therapy. You could have started at that end and made a film about it, you know, and Mark's extraordinary role, right? And Stephanie Strathy in rediscovering this. And no no joke, I mean, this is, you know, it, you could almost do a sequel about this because there are kids being saved all over the world because of Mallory's case, you know, both with CF and without CF. There are limbs that are not being amputated because of Mallory's case, because they're using phage to knock out these superbugs that are completely resistant to antibiotics. And it's 
are completely natural. You know, these things occur in nature. We evolved alongside them. So there are no side effects, right? And so it's incredibly moving, right? I mean, talk about a third act, right? Yeah. For a filmmaker too, you're like, wow, you know, and and, and that was a big wrestling match, just sort of how to, how to deal with that. Um, I, and I need to jump in because I got an email at 10 a.m. this morning. Will and I had heard about this. We did a Phage Friday talk last week. And they just came out in Nature, which is a very prestigious science magazine, the case of a young woman who survived a terrorist attack in Brussels only to nearly die from a superbug. And they treated her with phage therapy and she's made a fantastic recovery. And so one of the things that I really like, a lot of my friends and the way we were able to raise $5.5 million in Mallory's lifetime was because our friends loved Mallory and dug deep and tried to help her. And a bunch of them said to me when Mallory died, you know, it's not that we don't care about CF, but we were doing this for Mallory. We're going to move on. Phage therapy is going to affect anybody who has any sort of superbug or resistant bacteria. And the World Health Organization tells us that one person every three seconds will die from a superbug by 2050. So phage therapy has um, ramifications and the ability to help people so far beyond this little small community. And yet this small community is providing the ongoing number of people who every day battle resistant bacteria. So they'll be able to fill the clinical trials because, you know, there are so many one-offs and you don't necessarily know, but the CF population will in essence be the guinea pigs in an effort to save themselves and also to help others. So it's quite a remarkable story. It's just it, no, it's, it's amazing. And where should, because I think people need to learn about this. So I'm recommending that people watch this film for no other reason than to understand this part of it. Um, if that's what gets you in the door, there's so many other things that'll keep you there, but this, like, I, I need to learn more about this and I, I want to go to this talk. How do I find out more information about phage therapy? What's the best way to get started? And it'll all be, learning it'll, po- it'll be posted on salt and my Perfect. So you'll be able to figure out how to get to everybody. And you can, oh. uh, my email's up there and you can email me anytime. And I'm always putting people together. I, every time I speak, somebody says to me, oh, I need to talk to the Yale people, the UC San Diego people. I know somebody battling a superbug, And I do a lot of that. I spend a lot of my time doing that. That's the advocacy part of my work. And it's really important to me. That's amazing. And what's, what's extraordinary too is, you know, we, we were on this talk with, you know, this group of, um, of phage researchers around the world uh, last week. Literally around the world. Literally around the world. It was amazing. Uh, but, you know, Australia, Belgium, you know. South Africa. South Africa. What was so amazing was this young woman pipes up who, you know, and they were, they were all referring to this thing called the phage directory. And of course, the thing about phage is, you know, there are millions of them in existence everywhere. You know, you have millions of them in your body right now, mm-hmm. right, doing, doing their thing. And, um you know, very much part of the sort of the biome. And um, they're actually, uh, they're pres- they're available on prescription in Belgium already. They're so far ahead, right? Wow. So, if, yeah, and, and the phage directory lady pipes in and she's like, well, you know, th- and the, the reason they can be on prescription is because this group has started to um, catalog them, right? So they, they catalog them, they collect them, right? And that drops the cost down. And she just says, oh, yeah, and of course we started the phage directory after we heard about Mallory's case. That's docu- that's well documented. That's well wow. documented. They yeah. started it because of Mallory. I, I was like, I almost started crying. I damn was like, oh, I knew that already. I, I like, knew oh, that. Like, they came to my house. They came to my house right after Mallory died, and they said, "We want to start a phage directory." These two people showed up at my doorstep. It was crazy, and now they're moving to Australia because they got funding to do a library there. But the people in the phage community are very committed. 
and they've never gotten their moment in the sun and they've been doing this a long time and it's because of the patent protections and large pharma and they're and now they've finally figured out a way to monetize and now that they have we'll see a lot more of it that's wonderful that that, that that's such a the the downstream effects of this of this journey are going to be for generations to come where this will be something that um yeah, they're, they're a life well led, and what a beautiful outcome from this. So, and not, and not to make you cry, Christopher, but all from the love of a crazy committed father, right? So, yeah. it makes me want to cry when I think about Mark yeah. and his reaction to this diagnosis, Mallory's diagnosis, and that lifetime. And you think of, you know, I mean, I'm like, anyway, it blows me away. Well, but actually, but actually, I would like to explain exactly what happened. He was trying to use pig's lungs to save Mallory, but. He went to Dr. George Church at Harvard, who said, it's not going to happen in time for Mallory, but look into phage therapy. And in, do, in so doing, he found Stephanie Strathy. Stephanie had saved her husband, who had, they'd gone on a trip to a third world country, and he picked up this crazy bacteria that was resistant. He was at death's door, and Stephanie knew about this, and she's decided to try it, and it worked. She's not a publicist, and she hadn't really figured out how to blow the heck up. She did a TED Talk, and you know she'd done small things, but it really hadn't gained traction. And then Mark got in touch with Stephanie and she tweeted and, you know, she was able to put together this international team. They worked with Mark and then Mark decided that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which has a lot of money, should be funding these trials. And so he introduced Stephanie and the Yale team to the CF Foundation. And now the CFF is funding these trials and we were able to raise money. We raised $100,000 from sending out Will's two-minute trailer because people fell in love with the trailer. And we said, we're using this for phage therapy. And we made the inaugural grant to the IPATH group, Stephanie Strathy and Dr. Chip Schooley. And now Ben Chan and John Koff and Paul Turner at Yale are doing the work and they're doing clinical trials. And they're also trying to do compassionate use trials, which is how Mallory got it. Because if you don't have the FDA approval, you can't give it to patients and you can only do it when they're at death's door. But the crazy part of the whole story to me is that the U.S. Navy is the one who provided with adaptive phage therapeutics this company. And why were, the, why, was, why were they working on it? Because they had soldiers in Iraq who were coming back with these bacteria. So they had this top secret research. But nobody had put all the pieces together. And I swear, when Will says Mark's the unsung hero, Stephanie and Mark together are this dynamic duo that, I mean, you know, my job is publicity, right? So I'm spreading their message. But they've done this amazing thing. And it was really Mark's idea to introduce it to the CF Foundation, which has, it's kind of the governing body for this entire community that has really moved the needle. They just made a $5 million investment in a biotech company and oh my God. Adaptive Phage Therapeutics is a company that's been in it for a while. And they're the ones that are organizing the Kennedy Center screening because antimicrobial resistance is important. And Boomer Esiason, the football player, who yeah, has yeah. a runner. They're involved in this, and the Boomer Esiason Foundation is very focused on antimicrobial resistance. And Gunner, his son, who's the male version of Mallory, I always say, he's the one who said to Will and to it's me, "It's not as good looking, but okay." Don't tell Gunner I said that. <laughs> he said, "This should be the film. This will be the film that introduces the topic of antimicrobial resistance to mainstream America because people don't understand that resistance leads to superbugs, and superbugs are going to kill us." and it's all taken a backseat to COVID, but we're now using the film in many more ways. I mean, we always knew we would use it for certain things, but 
it just keeps layering on. So we're very grateful for the publicity and for the chance to talk about it because it's a small film in a very big crowded world. So without, without people talking about it, we won't get in front of people the way we need to. Oh, uh, absolutely. And um, anything that I can do to help add to that and just steer people to that conversation, I'm more than happy to do. Um, but Will, I think you, it's funny that you said not to make you cry when you introduced this idea, because it was literally that moment in the film when you show this exchange of text messages that, I, and it's just that, that dad and me, it's, you know, that leave it to your father to be the one who might, you know, who puts, puts us together. And it was just, I was a, I was a mess for the next half hour. It was just going back and forth between just crying and it's like trying to hold it together and trying to be, you know, something of watching this with a critical eye, but I just gave up on that and allowed the <laughs> power of the film to, to, to kind of wash over me at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's what I say, you know, in the end, I, it, I, I really, I think making people feel something is the best way to make them think something, yep. telling them what to think. You know, I think we're all over that. Yeah. Yeah. You tell somebody what to think and they'll feel something. It'll be pissed off or bored. One of the yeah. two. <laughs> so yes. That's really about it. But thank you both so much for taking the time to do this today. I genuinely appreciate it. And thank you both for putting this film together because this is an incredible movie that I think people need to see. It's really important. So thank you. I don't say those words lightly. Thank, thank you. you. It's a pleasure talking to you. You as well. Thank you so much. Bye, -bye. Bye Chris. Bye. Thanks, Emma. Appreciate it. Bye, love. Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope
Crack.